Between 1945 and 1962, the United States conducted 331 atmospheric nuclear tests. Today, the government still denies the genetic effects caused by the radioactive fallout. Where is she? Answer me! I don't know where she is. I never leave this place. Your people asked our families to leave their town. And you destroyed our homes! so funny it's breakfast time <laughs> <laughs> Well, howdy, stranger. We don't see many visitors around these parts. What say you come on over and join us for some good old-fashioned home cooking? It ain't nothing more than some disgusting awful. I'm Chris, a.k.a. the Meat Macarve, and my compadre over there is none other than the Poultrygast, a.k.a. Danny, the Scottish Juggalo. Hey, Danny, you hungry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't getting old, buddy. I'll tell you, I'm uh, getting my uh, acting chops out of the way. Yeah, definitely. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, boys and ghouls, your friends at One Man's Meat Podcast enjoyed themselves so much on our sojourn into horror movies that we have decided to do it again. And this time, we are venturing into the realm of remakes. Danny, what celluloid classic are we going for this time? The 2006 remake of The Hills Have Eyes, which was uh, released 17 years ago.
imagine the first people that crossed this desert, they didn't know where they were? Yeah, I can, because neither do we. Hey, get up. Tell me again why we couldn't fly like normal people. Don't see too many travelers around here. Where y'all headed? San Diego. You have a safe trip. Indeed it was, buddy, and um, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be at the time and now. But Danny, before we begin, on a recent episode of the Chain Wrestling Podcast, you controversially chose wrestling over horror movies as the one thing that you would have in your life, making the bold claim that horror as a genre had peaked. Now, I agree with you there, mate, but why do you believe that to be the case? Basically, um, I that was just my own personal... I was wondering if I'd ever be called out on that. <laughs> with, uh, I thought... Um, I think because I see horror going in a certain direction now and uh, compared to when I was a teenager, it was going in a completely different um, direction. And obviously before I was born in like the 70s, 80s and things like that, it was going in a different direction. But uh, to be honest, I'm not impressed with the way it's going right now. But um, yeah, that's how, why I chose uh, wrestling over horror. Yeah, um, I will be honest with you, buddy. I completely agree with you there. Um, one of the points that I like to make to people is, um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the works of Eli Roth. Yes, yeah, Hostel and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. So he did a, a series in America for AMC Networks, which uh, moved over on these shows to Shudder online, which is like the, the Netflix of horror, or at least for us it is, um, where he looks at the history of, of horror. And uh, one of the interviews that he has is um, a double interview between fellow members of his Splat Pack. And it's um, Greg Nicotero, who's the executive producer of The Walking Dead, and 
Rob Zombie. Um, and basically, they were talking about how, um, oh, about 30 years ago, if a horror movie was to be deemed worthy of winning an award, he had to go under another genre. So you get films like, say, The Silence of the Lambs or The Sixth Sense, which when you, you look at it, they are very clearly horror movies. But they had to be classified as psychological thrillers in order to be deemed worthy of an award. Whereas today, um, I think the modern horror, the modern horror film even, is nothing more than a psychological thriller shot in the dark. Yeah, I fully agree with that as well. I mean, yeah. uh, it's it's very uh, trendy and things like that. But like oh. even when I, I was a teenager and things, I had people in my ear saying, "Oh, horror movies are not as good as they were in the '90s or the '80s." And now I can understand where why why they were saying that because we all like things that we grew up on. Of course. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I am very much a product of my horror environment. So you show me a slasher, um, whether it was released yesterday or from yesteryear, I am all over it. And, you know, I the extent of my viewing probably goes as far as, say, maybe the Insidious series. Um, and don't, don't get me wrong, there are some very good films being released today um the um the brazilian and south korean horror scene is very impressive but there's nothing out there that really grabs me anymore um i i enjoyed the it movies don't get me wrong but i was more impressed by the budget that they were given rather than the fact that they were actually like horrifying if that makes any sense yeah it does yeah very much so i mean a lot of it is um uh horror movies a lot of it is uh derived from um nostalgia and things like that they have to reach back uh to get like people it's a lot like wrestling is it there's a lot of parallels uh, i find with oh yeah definitely yeah, but, um, you have to go back to get um, like a like when, uh, for instance, Scream broke a lot of uh, records this year in January, and mm. it was like, yeah, but we grew up on Scream too, <laughs> and it was like the budget was a lot more than it was in the nineties. Yeah, and as as good as the current iteration is, our Scream will always be better than their Scream. You know yes. what I mean? Hundred percent, hundred percent, and that's the way I feel about the Hills of Eyes. If it ever gets remade, this yeah. iteration of it, which is the second of the remake, yeah. So, um, as you very wisely stated, the two thousand and six iteration of the Hills of Eyes is a remake of the nineteen seventy seven original as well as being the third official film in the franchise as a whole. However, Danny, there is talk that the Wes Craven movie Mind Ripper was supposed to be part of the Hills franchise as well. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I class it as because uh, it was part three, so I class it as. But I, I think um, a lot of people just don't class it for some reason because it wasn't connected too much to the original series. Yeah, I think the story itself makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I think it's just more the point of you're talking about 
reanimated corpses um, more than it being about, you know, mutants and stuff. But we're still yeah. talking about humans being experimented on, whichever yeah. way you look at it. So so for me, it's it's the third film in a franchise of five. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would 100% agree with that. Awesome. So um, what is quite rare for most franchises Wes Craven has a hand in all of the official Hills movies, and in this one, he has a producer credit. The film was written by the French duo behind High Tension, Alexandre Aja and Gregory Lavasseur, as well as being directed by Aja himself. The film made $70 million globally on a $15 million budget, and the film focuses on the Carter family who are preyed upon by a family of cannibalistic mutants in the surrounding hills of the New Mexico desert. The film holds a 52% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is the second best reviewed film in the franchise. So Danny, what prompted you to choose this film for our perusal this month? I, um, it's definitely it's one of the ones that I was um, attracted to as a child because I, I'll tell this um, story now. Uh, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll save it to the end. Actually. But what what it was was um, I, a lot like a lot of horror fans. People watch things when they're not supposed to, when they're at, not at the right age. And I watched see. this um, just to give a briefing on the story later. I watched this at a very young age, and it um, impacted me because it was like wow like it just shocked me when I, what i was seeing on the screen it was like wow so it's definitely been one of my uh, favorite films it would have been at a young age as well for you young man yeah. because uh yeah i watched it when it first came out and there's 12 years between us so you should yeah. have known better my boy oh yes i should have but i think my stepfather should have as well <laughs> <laughs> we always blame the step parents don't we yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was it was my stepdad that got me into um, Viz of all things, and um, I mean he is a is a was a will always be a massive wanker. But I've got to thank him for that. Anyway, um, getting back to the subject, I was very happy that you chose this film, pal, as Wes Craven is one of the heads on my Mount Rushmore of horror. So any excuse to watch a film with his paws all over it is a good excuse, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, as I was recording this, I can see my Wes Craven book there. <laughs> so, yeah, he, which is great audio uh, for this. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah, he, he definitely, he's uh, one of the gods in uh, horror, isn't he? Definitely, yeah, absolutely is. And uh, a guy whose legacy cannot be denied. And one of the many things that I enjoy about his movies, pal, are that he likes to base most of them on real life events, with Hills being no different here. Um, are you familiar with the inspiration behind this franchise, buddy? Uh, a little bit. Um, wasn't it is somebody in Scotland um, who, uh, like in the 1300s or something like that, I haven't read too much into it. Do you know anything about it? Well, yes, and um, prepare to be mystified by the research. So this is something for Daddy Dan here because he commented quite favourably on our researching skills. So uh, when once in the New York Library, Wes Craven came across an article about the Sawney Bean family. Speaking to Horror.com in 2006, Wes noted the tale of an area of road in Scotland in the 1700s that people believed to be haunted due to the number of strange disappearances along the road. 
The story came out when a couple were attacked by these wild-looking people, and one of the couple got away, the husband of the two. Now, he happened to know somebody in the court, and they sent out an expedition, which resulted in a cave being found along the English Channel. According to legend, Sonny Bean was born in East Lothian, Scotland. His father raised him while working as a hedge trimmer and ditch digger. Though the son planned to follow in his father's footsteps for work, Bean ended up with Black Agnes Douglas, a woman who shared his taste for human flesh and carnage. They began living in a cave together near the Galloway coast, which was far away from the world of normal folk, and that allowed for their cannibalistic tendencies to spawn. The exact number of children and grandchildren the pair raised in the cave is unknown, but over the 25 years that they called it home, it is believed they raised and cohabited with nearly 50 family members. The clan, much like the families featured in these films, would make meals out of clueless travellers who unfortunately came across their hunting grounds. They would capture people by night and dismember their victims in the cave before pickling, salting and eating the body parts. It is alleged that the family murdered and ate upwards of a thousand human beings over the years without ever visiting any neighbouring villages. Following the court-appointed investigation, 400 men were led into the caves, where they found horrors beyond their comprehension. From there, the family was taken into custody by the monarchy and executed for their crimes against humanity. Speaking during the 1977 release of the original movie, Wes touched on the way that the Bean family had been executed and how their crimes mirrored society at the time. Speaking with Arrow, he said that they did horrendous things to them, broke them all on the wheel, hanged the women in front of the men, and then they dismembered the men. And I was so struck by how on the one hand, you have this feral family, that's killing people and eating them. But if you look at it, they weren't doing anything that much worse than civilization did when they caught them. And I just thought, what a great kind of A slash B of culture, how the most civilized can be the most savage and how the most savage can be civilized. I constructed these two families as mirrors of each other. I found it very interesting to look at ourselves to think of ourselves as having the capacity, not only for great good, but for great evil. And I think he manages to capture that vision well in this movie, Danny, without giving too much away. He really does, yeah. I was As you was reading that, I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's pretty much a blueprint of the movie, isn't it? It really is. Um, so, speaking of that, let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. So... Let's take you to the two men in the New Mexico desert, clad in hazmat suits and Geiger counters, as they do a spot of fishing, unaware that they are being watched. One of the men is literally startled by a bloody, dishevelled gentleman, who suddenly backs away before one of the hazmat dudes takes a pickaxe to the spinal column. The wielder of said weapon lays waste to the other two men before driving away, their bodies trailing behind, and we get to our opening credits. During the opening sequence, flashes of deformed children are shown. These children are victims of the infamous Agent Orange K. 
chemical. We'll talk about setting your stall out, Danny. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's um, a sign of things to come, definitely. It really is. But we then cut to a picture of domesticated bliss as retired police detective Bob Carter and his wife Ethel are travelling from Cleveland to San Diego through the New Mexico desert for their silver wedding anniversary. With them are their three children, Lynn, Brenda and Bobby, Lynn's husband Doug and their baby daughter Catherine, and two German shepherds, Beauty and Beast. Quite the perfect little nuclear family, pal. Yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> However, do you recognise Big Bob Carter from anywhere else? No. Was he in another film? Oh, he was in another film, all right. Um, the role of Bob Carter is played by Ted Levine, who is famously known as being Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Wow, I didn't make that connection. That's brilliant. Wow. It looks totally different, doesn't he? Yeah, big time, big time. Mm. Just goes to show you the power of acting. <laughs> <laughs> so, our family stop at a gas station where the elderly attendant suggests a different route through the hills, claiming it will save them a few hours. And this is where the viewer may begin to suspect foul play, as our seemingly helpful attendant had been seen earlier reluctantly accepting a mysterious care package stuffed with goodies, hadn't he? Yep. Um... He was uh, just idly standing by, wasn't he? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like nothing untoward happening there at all. Uh, but not long after, the carters get their tyres punctured by a hidden spike strip, causing the truck and trailer to crash. So prior to this, there seems to be a hint of tension between so-called real man Big Bob and mild-mannered telecommunications salesman Doug, isn't the bud? Yes, yeah, you can feel it as uh, the camera goes into the um, the trailer. It's like, yeah, you can see it. Yeah, it's the classic father and son-in-law dynamic here, or at least what some people go through. My father-in-law's lovely. Um, I think he even listens to um, to the show, to oh, be brilliant. fair. Um, shout so, out. <laughs> yeah, um, shout out to Paul Tarling. Um, he was a wrestling fan back in the day, so... Um, We'll showcase some world of sport for you one of these days, big man. Um, but as we move on, um, a lot of focus is going to be on Doug and the lengths that he will go to in order to protect what he loves, won't they? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's his film, essentially. Definitely so. So, um, there seems to be no hope of these guys fixing the car by themselves. So Bob and Doug set off in separate directions in order to find help while the rest of the family stay by the trailer, which is always a great idea in films like this, right? Yep, nothing can go wrong. <laughs> nothing can possibly go wrong if you two big, strong men disappear from the family. So Lynn begins to get the feeling that they are also being watched. Bobby notices as well that his favourite red hoodie has gone missing. Beauty escapes, and when Bobby chases her into the hills... He finds her mutilated corpse. Horrified, he flees back to the trailer, but falls off the hill on the way, knocking himself unconscious. A timid female mutant called Ruby, adorned in a familiar red hoodie, protects him from her brother Goggle, who may or may not have been spying on our hazmat friends earlier. Meanwhile, Bob arrives back at the gas station, 
Upon searching the station, he finds newspaper clippings detailing various disappearances in the area after recent nuclear tests at a mining town by the US government that caused the mutants deformities. He confronts the attendant, who then commits suicide in front of him. Bob attempts to flee in an abandoned car, but is attacked by the mutant leader, Papa Jupiter, and led into the mines. And it's all finally beginning to make sense here, Danny. Along the way, the mutants and the attendant have been in cahoots. They have. Um, just going back to the gas, gas station attendant, um, he seems to have found a living playing this uh, similar type of roles, like um, the um, Hills of Eyes. Uh, I think he was in both, and I think he was in um, Wrong Turn and things like that. He, he's very stereotypical, but it works mm. for him. Yeah, he is in Wrong Turn, isn't he? I yeah, think it's I was in the remake as well. Yeah, I was I was wondering where I'd um where I'd seen him before. He yeah, he definitely has that kind of well, I, I think he's in one of the Friday the thirteenth movies as well, yes. actually. One of the early ones. Yeah, I think he is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just coming to mind. Yeah, he um warns the children not to well not the children, he warns the uh, victims not to uh, go somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, or, or at least it, it looks like him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Bobby is found by Brenda, but he decides not to tell his family about beauty. Doug returns after heading towards the interstate and finding nothing but a huge crater filled with numerous cars and other belongings. Worried that his father has not come back, Bobby tells Doug and Lynn he doesn't think they're alone in the desert and eventually comes clean about Beauty's fate, just as Pluto and Lizard infiltrate the trailer. They attack and rape Brenda, who has stayed in the trailer with baby Catherine, while using a distraction of immolating Bob to a tree to divert the others. When Lynn and Ethel return to the trailer, Lizard shoots both of them before abducting Catherine and then escapes with Pluto. Doug and Bobby return to discover the carnage, and Lynn and Ethel die shortly afterwards. While Doug takes stock of his new single dad situation, Beast finds Coggle and rips his throat out. Goodbye, Beast! Goodbye, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this this paragraph doesn't do this bit justice. I mean, talk about a masterclass in pacing, dude. I mean, this this film is... Certainly not about taking things slowly or leaving things to the imagination. No, definitely. It's uh, very, it, it just keeps your heart beating, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a really, really visceral part of the film where, you know, you, you get the impression that, you know, this, this is only going to be like viewers taking one side of the tale here, isn't it? Yeah. Like there's, there's no real sympathy for the mutants at this moment in time is there no absolutely not no it's like a it's quite a simple story but it's very effective yeah very so the next morning doug along with beast set out to rescue catherine he comes across an abandoned nuclear testing village through the mining town's cave system but is knocked unconscious by big mama Awakening in a pre-soylent green-filled chest freezer, he escapes and encounters Big Brain, 
who reveals the mutant's origins to him. And as brief as the dialogue is here, I I loved this scene. Uh, I mean, I I don't mind films that jump into the action buddy just as long as they find time to fill in some backstory. And this film does it in the time that they've got, most definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. Um, uh, I would have preferred it, like you said, it was very brief, but maybe like a 10 minute thing about it. But it was still cool because you, you get the point of why they're there. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be fair, um, I've, I'm have i ashamed to say this because I've I've got the original right on the top of my personal film shelf there. But I've not watched the original movie in uh, about 20 years. And I honestly don't recall there being any kind of backstory or no. at least to the extent of this. In yeah. it. it's, it's a very good film. But it's a very good film in the sense of, do you know what I feel like? Mindless, senseless violence. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, for that, it's a very good film. But where I think this has the edge over the original is that you get an understanding of kind of why things are happening and, and why these mutants are the way they are, I feel. Yeah, you definitely do. Um, and, and It was the 70s after all, wasn't it? So... <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like it wasn't always about a story. It was, um, yeah. it was about getting people into grindhouse cinemas, wasn't it? Yes, back then, yes. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, um, obviously before his, um, before his great fame, uh, Wes Craven was known as a grindhouse master. So yes, and there was nothing wrong with no, it back then. <laughs> no, absolutely not. There's, there's, there's no harm in it. And um, in all honesty, I, I think, uh, I mean, given our conversation about the state of modern horror. I think we're ready for a, a Grindhouse revival, personally. Yeah. And please let it be led by Edgar Wright. <laughs> or Eli Roth. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- those two need a double feature. Anyway, um, Big Brain announces to Doug and the viewing public that it's breakfast time. And this prompts Pluto to appear, who attacks Doug but he manages to gain the upper hand and kills Pluto with his own axe before killing another mutant, Cyst, who was played by executive producer for The Walking Dead, Greg Nicotero. Now, I've not given this sequence justice because it's just, I mean, mwah, chef's kiss. It's incredible. Um, this is easily, far and away, the best sequence in the whole film. Yeah. It's something that I watch on YouTube quite a lot, to be honest with you. Um, it's uh, it's definitely the best scene in the film, in my opinion. But the um, levels of like twists and turns and things like that, and just the sheer violence. And I think my favourite part of it is when he just goes to pick up his uh, glasses and it just looks like a total badass. Yeah, exactly. Um, lots of fingers and all. Yeah, I think I've... Um... I think we've looked at the same clip because it's the the clip that I've used at the beginning of this episode to yeah. <laughs> to draw people in. Uh, this is this is one of those films where um, the the trailer isn't overly vocal. So uh, this is another thing. Eighties um, and nineties trailers were the best trailers, mate. I'm just putting it out yeah. there because yeah. you've got somebody that explained the movie like this, and you keep telling yourself it's only a movie, but we're going to tell you the story. Whereas this trailer, while good, um, it doesn't really make for an audio 
Um, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, have you seen the band um, Exorcist trailer that was banned? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it gets its point across, but um, it doesn't give away too much. And uh, I watched that not that long ago at three o'clock in the morning, and I've regretted <laughs> every second of it. <laughs> yeah, mate. How, how did you ever manage to sleep again? That, that trailer terrified me. Oh yeah, I sleep very difficulty anyway, but yeah. <laughs> oh dude, it was it was the children of Ravens back levels of um never sleep again for me. Oh yeah. That <laughs> we have to cover that at some point on this show. I mean Absolutely that... we do. Yeah, yeah, I am I am willing to pay for a month of trauma now just to watch that um if it's not on YouTube anymore, but we shall see. Oh, I'll find it on YouTube for you. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> so after ordering Lizard to kill Catherine. Big Brain is mauled to death by Beast. Um, Ruby manages to take the baby from Lizard and escapes through the hills. Um, Mate, I can see why you enjoyed this film so much. Um, Like, it wasn't even slow going. Like, from from the very beginning, this film sets its stall out and it's, it's no more evident than kind of this stage here. Like, I know we've... We've covered a lot in such a short space of time, but that's the beauty of this film. I mean, just a shout out to the location shots as well. It's really uh, interesting. Um, but yeah, there's like you said, there's a, it's it's all about um, after the initial killing of um, Bob. It's all about the film's all about um, Doug and uh, it's his journey, isn't it? Like him trying yeah. to get his daughter back and uh, his and uh, reunite with his family. But, Definitely, yeah. yeah, and it's like you get this initial, like, you see kind of the conversion of Doug in, in such a short space of time, so when he when he enters the house, he's the Doug that we know and have to accept in that, you know, you, you get the impression that this guy, as much of a devoted husband and father he is, is a bit of a wet lettuce at the beginning yeah. of the film, isn't he? Yeah, and then and he's just a guy who sells um, cell phones, as he put it. <laughs> too right, but then by by the end of this particular scene, like you say, like he's he's lost three of his fingers. Um, he puts his glasses on with that hand, uh, having just gone on a murder fest, and it's like, oh, Doug, aren't you suddenly sexy with your killing spree <laughs> and? It is blatant, blatant disregard for the rules of life. Yeah, and he's just absolutely uh, covered in blood as well, and like um, he's just armed with the um, the gun, and he's armed with the dog as well. You could argue as well. Yeah, exactly. So back at the trailer, Brenda and Bobby build an explosive trap, which they set off when Brenda is attacked by Jupiter. Meanwhile, Doug catches up with Ruby, but Lizard attacks them before Ruby can hand Catherine over. A struggle ensues, and Doug manages to defeat him with Sist's shotgun. Ruby then gives Doug his daughter back. Lizard, still alive, aims the shotgun at Doug, but Ruby tackles Lizard off a cliff, sending them both falling to their deaths. So, mate, this is a a typical act of unselflessness from ruby and we lose the one pure character in this film if you don't count baby catherine of course yeah yeah we certainly do but more importantly 
we lose that red hoodie, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, Bobby certainly never sees that again, bless him. It's his favourite sweatshirt as well, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> but no, seriously, that's a good point about her being the only pure character because um, she did the, like, the ultimate sacrifice thing because he was definitely in line of um, being killed there. So she helped big time. Yeah, totally. So Bobby and Brenda find Jupiter wounded from their trap, leading Brenda to finish him off with a pickaxe before the siblings are reunited with Doug, Catherine and Beast. As the survivors of the Carter family embrace, an unknown mutant watches them from afar through binoculars as the finalist plays out. And that has been a wild ride, Danny. Yeah, it certainly was, wasn't it? <laughs> but, but yeah, really interesting film. I mean, it is. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a parallel between this film and uh, our first film in this series, which was Hellraiser in the Ten. You know, yeah. that film's very subtle in the story that it tells, whereas this is very visceral and it just continues to ramp up and up and up, isn't it? Yes, it was. It's a total um, contrast, as you were saying. But mm. with that, Chris, I'm excited to see where you're going to take us next uh, time. Well, um, we will soon see about that. But um, before that, I'd just like to discuss this film a little bit more. So um, so this film was part of the um, wave of remakes that happened in the early 2000s and reviews for this particular remake went from one extreme to the other. Going by its current rating on Rotten Tomatoes, this film was considered to be rotten. While the Star Tribune unfairly referred to this movie as torture porn, Roger Ebert, meanwhile, wished for more attention to be given to the characters. However, in what is a, a testament to people power, this film was a commercial success. Mm. And the likes of Bloody Disgusting and The Washington Post gave favourable reviews. Now, in my opinion, Danny, I can see both sides of the argument. Not the torture porn metaphor as such, because that's just a, a dumb opinion this type of movie like this is not hostile yeah. but I can see a lot of negative reviews at the time coming from the type of people that were tired of the remakes of classic horror movies and um, this film comes off the back of both the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Amityville horror remakes yeah neither of which were particularly decent Um I know that's sacrilege because you're a massive Texas Chainsaw fan but this particular remake of it around this time I wasn't a fan of yeah that's fair. That's completely fair. I mean, I like. I can see why people uh, are not fans of the remakes, but the, um, I think anything between two thousand and one and two thousand and nine remakes are, are favour. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre this year it wasn't perfect, but I still it was still enjoyable. But everyone yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah, too right. Um, I do enjoy the pace of this movie. And um, there's some nice attempts at character progression as well, um, in particular Doug, who gets a chance to really show what he's prepared to do when called upon him to step up. Um, and it was quite clever on the part of the directors and writers to give some background to the rationale for the mutants doing what they do. Um, I mean, you you never really feel sorry for them for one moment because they're still murdering innocent people and eating them. But 
you get why they would feel the need for reparations against a country that both failed and abandoned them without feeling the need to paint them as redeemable in any way. Yeah, definitely. You see, um, there's a lot of uh, like, um, character development, isn't there? Yeah. And the only exception in this case is poor Ruby, who, without even saying a word, gives a hint of innocence and sweetness to the otherwise rampant evil of the mutants. Yeah, it, it really does. It really does. I would refer to it as a her, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, I mean, this film um, has a lot of parallels with the 1977 original, but um, Aja managed to revamp and repackage the story for a new generation, in my opinion, um, yeah. expanding upon ideas of how society treats outsiders against a, a dreary backdrop of grinning mannequins and miners' homes that were left to to rack and ruin, kind of a uncanny realm of crumbled domesticity, if you like. Yeah, it really does. And um, I, I'd say, uh, I just wanted to ask you, who is your favourite character uh, throughout the whole film? Well, um, in all fairness, being completely unoriginal here, it's probably Doug. Um, I mean, he's, he's the character that's given the most attention really and um it's it's nice for him to have a kind of redemption story i mean even though he's, he's not really a, a dislikable character um especially if you are a, a son-in-law um but I, I just think you know the fact that this is a guy that steps outside of his comfort zone in order for what he cares about um it really spoke to me um what what about you mate do you do you have a favorite at all yeah, it would be Doug, but um, a close second would be Pluto because I enjoyed that fight scene so much. I was like, mm, yeah, wow. it was like um, the fight scene you can watch over and over again. Like on um, the there's a film um, Old Boy, where there's a fight scene where it seem, I seem to watch. I don't know if you've seen Old Boy. Uh, I haven't. It's it's one of the films on my watch list that I've just never got round to. Oh, actually yeah. watching. There's a fight scene uh, that's all that has like something like 21 million views on YouTube because people just lo- remember the fight scene. That that's the way I feel about the Hills of Eyes. Um, this oh, little wow. fight scene between Pluto and uh, Doug. Oh, cool! I'll have to I'll have to check it out then. Um, but yeah, you can tell that there's a a very much um like post 9/11 vision given to this movie as well from Aja. I mean, in 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 particular, there's there's a scene where um. Bob Carter lies dead and incinerated with the American flag plants in yeah. his skull. Um, I mean, to me, and I mean, to a lot of reviewers online as well, actually, it feels quite critical of, of the notion of the American dream, which was a, a common trope of movies in the years following uh, the Twin Towers attack. Yeah, especially this early on, isn't it? Yeah. And there's also like a very explicit dynamic between Bob and Doug with like they've got very polarised politics, which is made clear by their views on gun ownership, you know, where uh, Bobby's um, playing with the, the gun yes. before they, they yeah. split off. Yeah, it's it's, more, it's like um, it's for gun violence or against uh, gun control, sorry, gun control. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I totally understand. But of course, by the end of the film, um, both men are stripped of their humanity just in 
very, very different ways. So we've got Bob that's reduced to um, barbecue, essentially, um, and Doug seems to be the new no-nonsense head of the family. Yeah, I mean, he mm. does. Uh, you, you see it at the end, which uh, I thought that the second one uh, would lead more of his story, but we've got a completely different... Uh, I mean, you do see a flashback of him in the in the second film, but or you hear something mm. on the radio or something. But um, yeah, it's kind of the end of his story, isn't it? At the end, when you see him walking. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so, so what elements of this movie in particular did did you enjoy, pal? Definitely the uh, location shooting, uh, just like all the big hills and things like that. I like mm. that it was sh- it was mainly shot in the daytime as well. You do see a few nighttime scenes, which is mm. uh, quite rare for horror films, especially around th- this time. It was everything shot at night, um, yeah. and I really enjoy um, the music as well and uh, how the- how the music is used during the, the um, fright scenes. That gets your your hair standing up on the back of your neck and it's like just um but overall I, I definitely like the story and especially that it's based off of a real um incident as well or real mm. newspapers how about you bud yeah so um i think i think it really speaks to um there's that element of you, you don't really know what's going on in the in the backwoods um and you know it wouldn't surprise me if there were people that lived like this um and i think like the thing with um both aja and lava circus like i said they went into this film coming off a indie success in the film high tension uh which is like a a french slasher movie but they they did that basically off off a lot of like very visceral realism and what they knew like growing up in France and what have you and and again you can tell that like these guys they're not just playing to a a stereotype you can see that they've done their research here and uh like this this isn't just some kind of like money raking like big dumb remake like when you when you think about um and, and that's nothing against the two movies that were remade but when you look at like the kind of Wes Craven movies that they could have remade. Like you look at things like, say, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street, which, um, sorry if this upsets you, terrible remake. Yeah, dreadful no, I remake. Agree. They they picked the right guy to play Freddy, but they put him with a dreadful script that means yes. that you don't want him to play that character ever again. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they went. I think they went too dark with that. Absolutely. And the thing is, like, a lot of the films that Wes Craven is known for, they end up getting remade. So they eventually remake Last House on the Left, which, in this instance, the original is better than the remake. Yes, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> the remake they, is quite good, but... It is good, but, yeah, but not as good. They they remake A Nightmare on Elm Street, which um, the original, uh, far and away, is better than the remake, plain and simple. Yeah. Um, but I mean, with with this film, um, it's it's different to the original for yeah. all the right reasons. It actually tells a story. Yes, 100%. and the character progression 
is fantastic. Um, like for for me, um, I I won't say that it's the best horror film that I've ever seen, but it's a very very good horror movie, and what I like to call an enjoyable waste of two hours and four beers. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly that. what it took. The only thing that I regret about watching this movie is um, I I couldn't find my copy of it on DVD, so I had to watch it through Disney Plus. Oh, with so, adverts? Yeah, well, no, no, it, it wasn't the adverts as such. Um, it, in fact, there wasn't any. Weirdly, uh, we we pay for the deal where we don't get adverts, but um, like the kids mostly watch Disney Plus, so. A lot of their recommendations are a bit weird now. Um, <laughs> so, um, um, my the the other Danny in my life, um, my son Daniel, um, he's worked out how to use the remote now to choose what he wants. So I was making his lunch in the background, and I wasn't particularly paying attention to what he'd chosen. And yeah. then when I came in, he'd just got to the first twelve minutes of Alien. Oh. <laughs> now, granted, nothing had happened. Yeah. Nothing had happened at all, so it was fine. To him, I mean, he wasn't interested. It was just a very boring movie where yeah. a nice lady with an 80s haircut was walking down the corridor. So that's absolutely fine. That's yeah. all he needs to know what Alien is about. Yes, but 100%. if I took a bit longer to make his lunch, that, that poor lad would have been mortified. Oh, so, um, so, yeah... Um, <laughs> I have to be very careful with the recommendations that it throws before us now because before today it was Marvel movies and Disney princesses and the odd Star Wars because he's getting that way, bless him. So now I've got to be careful for the odd slasher that they recommend my son to watch. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. It's my fault for not putting in parental controls. I'm not sure how that that works, but I'm sure I hope there's a way you can... You can get uh, you can get past it. Um, so basically, what I've told him to do is just tell me what you want to watch, and I'll put it on for you, son. Yeah, that's the he's best like, way. Okay. <laughs> and to be fair to him, he's um, he is obsessed about um, doing his Bumblebee podcast with me. So he's more bothered about watching Transformers films right now. To be honest. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, um, me too. Um, I think. We're probably going to try and do it before I get back to work, but I, I don't know if that's going to happen. But yeah, he's he's very keen about it. So uh, so yeah, so um, listeners, do please look out for um, an ongoing series called Me and My Other Danny, where um, my son and I are going to start by watching um, the Bumblebee movie and talking about it. But he's also um, taken great pains at the moment to let me know that his favourite wrestlers currently are Rob Van Dam and Rey Mysterio so he might also be a part of his own version of Picky Poison where we talk about his two favourite wrestlers because bless him, it's it's ridiculously cute. I was the same age as him when I got into wrestling so I am I'm, I am all there for it just as my dad was with me. Brilliant. Brilliant. So we've done the sentimental side of things Um but Wes Craven proved with the Hills remake that he still had an eye for what would get the viewers bums on seats. So, Danny, for episode three, I would like to stay with the cinematic stylings of Mr. Craven and look at his 1984 masterpiece, 
that made a pop culture icon out of Robert Englund. So Danny, next month, I would like us to watch and critique the absolute classic and the original and best, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Brilliant. Yes, I'll look forward to that. It's been years since I've watched that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's a great choice. Brilliant. And it is a good choice for you to follow our pod parents through the means of social media. Um, If you have happened to catch us on the main feed um, and not on the UTT podcast, then frankly, my friends, as much as I love you, what the heck is wrong with you? Because you are missing out on some audio goodness. So do please follow the UTT podcast, which stands for Unbooking the Territory, at UTT Podcast on Twitter. You can follow us, your carrying riders through the journey of horror and horrible wrestling, at One Man's Meat Pod on Twitter. Danny, where can we find you among the realms of social media, mon ami? You can find me on uh, Twitter at Scottish Struggler, where I pretend to be a, a Scotsman for the entertainment of uh, about 300 people. <laughs> uh, oh, um, guys and gals, um, as we record, Danny is wearing a tam and there is nothing under his kilt. So if he's not Scottish, then I don't know what to believe anymore. <laughs> that That's just dirt sheet rumour. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you can find me there and um, yeah, you can hear me on uh, A Change in Attitude and you can hear me Nitro Nights and you can hear me here where I'll be uh, next month. Good man. And uh, should you choose to follow me, yeah, you can find me at Real Chris Bellis um, on Twitter. There's not a lot going on at the moment. I am literally just poking the bear at fundamentalist right-wing Christians that have chosen to um, respond with a ridiculous prayer to the fact that we are guesting on Good Cop, Bad Cop podcast this weekend. So um, I am a, a long-standing Christian of 20 years, but American Christians give all of the Christians a bad name and I will fight that to the hilt. But dear listeners, we have finished our feast and it tasted like pork. If a little tangy, we do hope that you have taken your fill and you're probably tired from all that food and fancy a nap. We understand and frankly, we encourage it. However, until episode three filters through your hippocampus, try not to have any bad dreams. Bye.